here's what thriving looks like. You get to the point where you can refinance properties that have built up equity now, have appreciated some, uh, you've rehabbed them and added value so they're worth more now. And all of a sudden you get tax free money. Welcome to the Good Stewards Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to seasoned real estate investors who want to maximize the cash flow potential in their business. We are buy and hold investors with a thousand plus properties and markets across the U.S. who bring an insider's view into the nitty gritty details of real estate investing. If you're looking to develop the mindset, teams, and systems that can dramatically build your real estate business and net worth, you're in the right place. Welcome to this episode of the Good Stewards Podcast. I'm Ryan Dossie. I'm Amanda Perkins. I'm Bill Sirius. And I'm Andrew Sirius. Hello, welcome to our podcast today. This is an exciting topic we're going to be talking about. But before we do, please look us up at thegoodstewards.com. Download our ebook. Give us some likes. Uh, tell your friends about us. We'd really appreciate getting the word out. We're going to talk about... Uh, I think the truly best wealth building opportunity that people with modest means have in our society, and that is buy and hold real estate investment. Uh, there's precious few things, endeavors that one can get into unless they are a software genius or, a, you know, are a trust fund baby that they can, they can become wealthy. This is one of them and maybe the best one. I remember uh, Andrew Carnegie said that 90% of the millionaires in the United States ca came to that kind of financial status through real estate investment. I've never checked his numbers out, but I got to believe that they're probably close to accurate. Uh, it kind of hit me just the other day. As a matter of fact, about three or four days ago, Amanda was driving down a street and uh, she said, it's so funny. This is, And it's kind of a main street in Eugene. It's River Road, actually. And she said, all the houses on the street are, are at an angle. They're not straight to the street. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right about that. As a matter of fact, I owned a house on that street. It was, uh, you can look it up if you want. It was 2996 River Road. And, uh, you know, as I thought about it, I talked to Amanda over the phone. We were just having a cell phone conversation about this street. And uh, it was a property that I bought because it had a large lot to it. And I was able to subdivide three lots in the back and sell them off. But then it came to the fact of the house. I never liked the house because it was on a busy street. We actually rehabbed it really nicely. And I thought, hey, I just don't want to own this house anymore. And uh, that's a very poor reason to sell a house because I sold it six years ago for 155000 I just looked it up. And, uh, six or 16 years ago. No, six years ago. Six years ago? Six years ago, November 10th, 2014. I got it right in front of me here. Now, why I looked it up is because uh, I wanted to see what it was worth now. And, of course, I looked over and you never can trust this estimate, but it's uh, listed at 290000 So because I just didn't like the house... Uh, that's the kind of appreciation I left on the table. Now, of course, we don't know if appreciation, uh, if there's going to be future appreciation to that extent, but it does kind of remind me of the power, again, of buy and hold real estate that you having put together an asset and having rehabbed it, putting it into your property management pool, 
you you've got something that has real legs in terms of a you know a upside to its value and you can create wealth if you do one like that you do six like that you do a dozen like that boy just think of the wealth potential that you have there i think the big thing you're talking about here is this is a uh this is a, a game of patience to an extent this is not uh you've used the expression that i've now coined and repeated more times than i can count um this is this is get rich slow but it's it's not that slow i mean we're not talking a two percent yield on a savings account kind of slow uh, but at the same time it's also not uh you know you're not a bitcoin millionaire in 30 days i mean you're not a yeah. bitcoin bankrupt in 30 days either though <laughs> so, yeah, give or take. <laughs> well, I also have another term that I like, uh, Ryan, and that's survive to thrive. Because uh, when you when you dive into uh, buy and hold, and by the way, uh, there's a lot of ways to get to buy and hold, and maybe I should start with that. One of them is to be be someone who flips properties for profit, uh, because that's going to get you into. Uh, understanding all the mechanisms you need. So if you're if you're new on the block with real estate investment, it's not at all bad to think about you know putting together a bank account, a purse, something you can draw on for buy and hold. I know people who have done a flip, a second flip, and then they the third one that they hold, and they go through that you know kind of three step process, and then they get to a two step process where they flip one, they hold one, they flip one, they hold one, whatever you need to do. To, to point you in the direction of of looking to build a rental portfolio is what's going to be in your best interest. There's not going to be a lot of people 10, 20, 30 years from now saying, oh gosh, I wish I didn't have these rental properties that I bought so long ago, which have paid the mortgage down, which have appreciated, which have paid me rent every month. There's not a lot of regret in that. There's a lot of regret potentially assuming they, they pay for themselves. Yeah. We're going to get <laughs> and into assuming that you're not buying for appreciation. I would also say on the flipping note, you can also wholesale to get there. Uh, that's what I did. I think I wholesaled three or four houses and this was kind of before like the Burr model was really well known. So we got a, a lead on two properties owned by the same owner. Uh, this is in St. Louis negotiated the purchase price. I believe we paid 45,000. The properties pulled in about 1400 combined I uh, went to a local community banker, wanted 25% down, which uh, I was homeschooled, so I'm not going to attempt to do that math. Uh, something like 10 or 15 grand that we took out of profits from wholesale deals and all of a sudden, I think, really became investors. Um, I think that's really buy and hold, I think, is kind of when you get to wear that badge. Because up until then, you really just kind of have a transactional business if you're wholesaling or flipping. You're not, uh, you're getting liquidity, which is, something you need. Um, Amanda and I talk about all the time. Uh, my, my topic, my power company is not going to accept equity for my bill this month, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? They want, they want cash. But when you really go from that dealer or transactional business model and mindset and transition over into the buy and hold piece, I think is really where you, you start, uh, turning the wheels of building some wealth. Ryan, if you could just how how do you decide whether you're going to wholesale something that is you're going to you're going to basically flip the contract or if you're going to flip something that is you're you're basically going to do a rehab and sell it to a homeowner? How do you make that decision? 
So, I mean, I try to avoid flips at all costs. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would rather wholetail, which is I close on a home and then list it on the MLS for the widest exposure over doing kind of a, um, a rehab, but it, I think it really just kind of comes down to the particular deal. And sometimes it's a matter of, we attempt to wholesale it. We don't get maybe an offer that's enough of what we want. We go to wholetail it. Maybe that doesn't work. So, okay, we're going to pull this one back off the MLS and, and flip and turn it. Um, I think I would hit on how I decide what I'm going to turn into cash versus keep for the portfolio um, is we, we try to own assets that are typical for the area is what I'm after. So if I'm in an area of 1970s, you know, cinder block three ones um, that are, you know, 1200 square feet, that's what I'm looking for. If I get a 500 square foot house, I'm going to let somebody else play that game. Um, you know, on the same side of things, we've had in a class areas. One time I got a lead on a log cabin and it was like, there's not comps for a log cabin. Uh, so I'm typically looking for what's typical for the area. And then I'm also really looking for like minimum of a thousand, thousand square feet, typically three bedrooms, one and a half bath being ideal. But I mean, obviously my favorite are the vinyl villages, four bedrooms, two and a half bath attached to car garage. But I think it also really just comes down to what your portfolio needs at that time. Um, you know, are you in the position where it makes sense for you to take on another project or do you need to pull in some cash? And we've, we've had, you know, phases where we kept everything. And then we've had other phases where it's like, we need to sell some stuff. Um, or, you know, we need to turn the inventory we have coming in. So I think it's kind of just a, a running balance of what does vacancy look like? What do construction needs look like? And what do cash flow needs look like? Um, is kind of what do log cabins how we make our decision? Like? We'll be having an episode on log cabins. Uh, the answer is <laughs> never. <laughs> You're not Davy Crockett, <laughs> Andrew. I know you guys in Kansas City have bought kind of a uh, a continuum in terms of the uh, lower end homes to middle homes. What? How do you decide that in terms of keeping in your rental portfolio there? I mean, usually our goal is to keep everything we can buy as long as it's not um, as long as it's not too expensive to just simply cash flow. We generally avoid buying in really bad areas. We had a couple experiences with that, and uh, it was not 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 good. So we did liquidate a few of those things just because we didn't want to hold them. It wasn't like a it wasn't a strategy per se. Um, I think if you're buying in really bad areas, generally you need to be a specialist at it. Um, it's not for the uninitiated or a slumlord, either or. Yeah, or someone. Um, yeah, and uh, <laughs> um, but we generally look at properties kind of ranging from uh, the lower, like kind of low, working class ish, which would probably be like a what we call like a cash flow play, where it's, it's high cash like flow, like a C C minus. To, yeah, C minus probably. Um, to uh, which we're not we're not looking for large amounts of appreciation. It's a little harder to have built in equity or not a much of it. But it will cash flow better up to sort of middle class, uh, which would be more of an equity. We're looking for, we're not going to get much cash flow, maybe a little bit above break even, uh, but more equity uh, and also more chance for appreciation. Those areas tend to appreciate more. And then in the middle, which is kind of lower middle class, probably our bread and butter, sort of a, you know, C plus B minus 
um, which kind of get a little bit of both. Uh, if you're getting into the more expensive properties, uh, like houses that usually are owned, you know, homeowners buy, those are hard to rent out and make work uh, with any sort of debt on them. And so if we're getting into those when we do, we usually flip them like we're doing a flip right now on a house that's um, we're probably going to list for two hundred ninety or three hundred thousand dollars, and that you know probably rent for about you know two thousand. Um, that's not going to cover the expenses, and so that doesn't make sense. We can make a decent profit on it. We'll flip it, but that's not generally been our strategy. We want to hold pretty much everything. We I think can something get. I want to highlight there is you have a range. I think a lot of people, well, I'm going to buy in this one particular area because I like this particular asset class. And if you want to build a portfolio of size, you do have to have diversity. And I think that's actually one of the things that I would say uh, we did a little wrong in my portfolio. And one of the things we're working on fixing moving forward is we really didn't do many of the working class type plays. Um a lot of our stuff is is higher, you know, vinyl villagey built post 2000. And it rents really well, doesn't cash flow very much. But like Bill mentioned on the appreciation swing, we just recomped our entire portfolio and we had single assets that went up $20,000, $30,000 in the past year, 18 months. But at the same time, you got to pay staff. <laughs> so that has to come from somewhere. So I, I think having a... Having a diverse, I mean, it's just like stocks, right? You wouldn't be just in tech or just in medical or just in US or just in overseas. If you're playing the stock game, chances are you have a diversified portfolio, which ideally should somewhat recession proof your assets. This is kind of the same way. If you only have A class assets that just pay for themselves and there's no cash flow, you could potentially be in some hot water if you have, you know, large expenses come up. Um, you know, on the same end, you don't want to just own C-class properties that don't appreciate because if the market appreciates, uh, I have friends in Denver that particular assets went up two, three hundred percent in the past couple of years. If all you owned were low-end properties, you missed out on that fund. You know, in in upper end areas and some of our listeners are likely living on the coast or in places that are really, really hard to make cash flow if you have any debt on them at all, particularly if you have 75% LTV on it, which is what we want to get because we want to burr out of our properties and get our money back uh, as much as we possibly can. But uh, you, ha you have to really kind of be a niche player. You have to look for the opportunities. Uh, one of the properties we just bought in Portland and, and almost have completed rehabbing, we're going to rent as a group home. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit, Amanda, and give, give us some numbers on that. Well, it's sort of a to be determined. So hopefully it's something we can report on. So if we were to rent it as a single family house in Portland, we would probably be looking about $2,250. Um, you know, it does have five bedrooms. It's on a large lot, but it's not a giant home, but it is all one level. And so it sort of lent himself, lent itself to the opportunity to maybe bring in like a adult foster care, uh, you know, that it's a really uh, strong business model, not that we're going to run, but that people that do run these, you know, um, take care of seniors or maybe uh, disabled adults in like a smaller home environment. And, um, you know, so basically they're running a business out of it. We're trying to figure out with the bank if they would look at that as sort of a 
commercial use of our residential property and if that could affect the value since we really, when we rehabbed it, uh, we did extra things to attract a residential care facility to come in and, uh, you know, take over the lease on this. And, you know, a house that would rent to a family for $2,250, we can rent out for probably $4,000 um, to a residential care facility. We have a couple of places like this in Eugene. It's worked out really great for us. Um, it's just, we're trying to figure out if the bank can figure out with the appraisal and the appraiser a different sort of a value than just value as a residential home. Because at the end of the day, it the resale value could go to uh, an adult care facility or to an individual homeowner. And how would you know, like how would that affect the value moving forward? For us, four thousand dollars rent is going to go a lot more, <laughs> a lot further towards our. Uh, cash flow than the twenty two fifty, which would barely cover um, the PITI on it. So it's still a work in progress that we're kind of finding our way through. I think a couple other options if you're in a higher priced area, um, ADUs, attached dwelling units, um, is something, you know, I know people doing it in California. I know people doing it in um, Texas. In fact, one of Stewardship's partners is doing some stuff in Austin with those. Another option is Airbnb out. If you have something like a duplex from a cash flow perspective, um, you may be able to get a lot more money going short term. Now, one caution I would make with that um, your business is dependent on somebody else's business. And I had a good friend of mine who owned about nine properties in Hawaii. And when the regulation changed, he all of a sudden, I mean, the market was just flooded with Airbnb properties that don't cash flow unless it's a short term rental. So all of a sudden, you know, um, all of a sudden he had to liquidate nine assets he bought because regulations changed. So be a little cautious of that. Um, <clears throat> not just adult care facilities. We've had pretty good luck with a couple state run programs, some of them being like, um, Oh, like parole type stuff. Um, we've had some pretty good luck with some of the kind of group homes. And then uh, I'd say another one is uh, creating an apartment in a house. We bought a house for uh, 325000 And I don't know, Amanda, how much money we put into it, at least twenty five, I think. But what we were able to do, it was somewhat... Ar- double that, double that. Really? Is that much? I said she- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Look it up while we're Double. here on the line. <laughs> oh, I sent it to you earlier today. It was our okay. budget was twenty five. It was forty six and counting. Okay, forty six so. and counting. Double. Darn. Is that the one at your house, Amanda? <laughs> no. <laughs> so one one thing I think that our listeners should know, because I think this is fascinating. Um Bill owns well over a hundred million dollars worth of real estate at this point. And house hacks. He has, is it two apartments that are basically in your attic? One apartment with two bedrooms. (laughs) One. Okay. One two-bedroom apartment. Amanda does something similar. Um, This is not a bad strategy. I built my home with an an ADU in it. So I have an apartment on the other side of my garage. It's the only property in that subdivision that has an ADU built into it, which is really cool. It does. And it covers a third of my mortgage. So it's pretty amazing. I would also say with these... Um, <laughs> I was having this conversation with my wife and she was like, you're out of your mind. If you think I'm, if I'm, I'm going to have somebody on the other side of my wall again, like we've, we've been in houses for so long. Um, I've stayed at Bill's house. I spent time at Amanda's house. 
you cannot tell. Like if this is done right, this isn't like, you know, you're at a college dorm and you can hear people on the other side of the wall or even like a condo where like, oh, you know, they fell down the stairs. If this is done right, it's virtually undetectable to anyone that, I mean, like with Bill's house, I wouldn't even have known there was apartments if he told me I couldn't park in a particular spot. So <laughs> that's another um, on the getting started in buy and hold real estate investing is potentially a good option. Um, so anything you could do to there. build your cash flow up, because that's really what it's all about. And to finish this uh, story about the house that I thought was going to cost us 25, that cost us 46,000 to rehab. The, it's just so it's far. Just so far. <laughs> it's finished, Amanda. <laughs> it's going to go over I let the 50. appraiser <laughs> through the house on Monday. All okay. right. They were okay. real impressed. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, the they better be for going double over the budget. <laughs> yeah, uh, the extra apartment. I mean, we even put a washer dryer in the space in the basement that was uh, somewhat set up for this, but we completed it, putting walls in, putting a washer dryer in, uh, just making the separation total. And yet, there's a door that allows you to go through that we would lock on both sides if in fact and also separate interests into this uh into this apartment that really makes it pretty nifty but it could be rented as two living units but there is a niche market out there of folks who would love to have an independent apartment in their house with their house next to their house that they could rent to uh their you know their uh grandmother or their mother-in-law or how's their 20 year old son that they don't want to keep track of (laughs) 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 now you ain't coming upstairs (laughs) so whatever it takes but instead of renting it for probably about oh maybe 2300 we're looking at three thousand dollars if we rent it with that niche apartment that can be re-rented out by the person there. If we have to, now this, this is a little touchy. We, we would rent them separately and we'd probably even get more rent out of them. Uh, we, in that case, because the utilities aren't, are combined, we'd have to pay the utilities and bill it back. That's not our preference. We could maybe get a few hundred dollars more per month on that, but our preference is just to have one person oversee the whole thing. They pay all the utilities and they rent out that extra space in any way they want to. I would say the, I think the point here, if you're in a more expensive area is don't just like throw your hands up and give up. And this doesn't work for me because I'm not in the Midwest. There are people in your market that have figured out how to make this work. Um, I was looking at just San Diego, which is where I live right now. And there was a, there's a single family that owns something like 3,500 single family houses. Now I can tell you, there's no way they have a negative cash flow on 3,500 assets their, their burn rate would be insane. Now that doesn't mean there's maybe some that they don't bleed a little and others that they make it up on. And obviously this was acquired over probably decades, but there are people in your market that have figured this out. It may not be a, you know, conventional. Um, one of the other things Bill does is student housing. It's rented out by the bedroom. Um, and some of these are houses, right? So there, there is a way to make this work in just about every market. It's just a matter of, are you willing to figure it out or not? And think outside the box. And are you committed to this buy and hold real estate model? I mean, it's not for everyone. We clearly are committed about it. We devoted a whole podcast to talking about how much we love buy and hold real estate. But, you know, it, it's just because 
we believe in it. It's what we do. And, you know, Bill's initial point, um, it's really just a way for the layman to build long-term wealth. And that is, again, built getting rich over a long period of time. It's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to, it's not a get rich quick and it does require a lot of work. So we need to do some slogan t-shirts. <laughs> Let me point you to our ebook. If you haven't gotten that ebook, you need to get it. Chapter one will settle the issue for you as to whether buy and hold is really worth pursuing. In chapter one, it goes through the fact that buy and hold is the ideal real estate investment strategy. Let's go through these, uh, this acronym a little bit. I is for income. D is for depreciation, that is you have tax advantages. E is for equity buildup. A is for appreciation. L is for leverage. And then there's one more I that I want to put in there, and that's the fact that you're dealing with an inefficient market. But let's let's maybe start with leverage because this is the power of buy and hold real estate. We'll start at kind of at the end there. Leverage means that I can control... Uh, with with one dollar, with five dollars, with ten dollars, I can control a hundred dollars. It's like a teeter totter. You're on the very end of the teeter totter. The other person is on the very front of the teeter totter, and you have all the control. Even if that person is heavier than you, you can lift them up because of leverage. Leverage in our business uh, culture is is in precious few places. It's very hard to leverage your money. Uh, they let you leverage, uh, I think, your stock uh, portfolio by 50%. Uh, that's that's as far as you can do it because there was a time when you could leverage 90% and a lot of people, as the market turned down, lost their shirt and drug a lot of lending institutions down with them. So where in the world can you leverage your, your money, use other people's money to enhance uh, the control that you have? Well, real estate investment is one of them because, again, you're – uh, unless you're a trust fund baby, you don't have unlimited funds. So you're putting in a few of your dollars and you're borrowing the rest of those dollars, either from a private lender, seller financed, uh, conventional uh, bank loan. Uh, and with that, you're, you're able to exponentially control assets that have the potential to give these benefits of I-D-E-A-L. I. <laughs> I think one of the other points to make here is with leverage, this does not make sense if you do not have cash flow. So this is, you have to analyze the deal from the standpoint of if I'm doing a cash out refinance, or if I'm into this thing for 75% of what it's worth on a mortgage, does it still cash flow? And I think not only looking at that initially, but also reviewing that on an annual basis makes a lot of sense. You know, I had a, I had a property that was a, it's an A-class house. I love it. The guy who's in there pays like clockwork every single time, actually pays early normally. And I was like, you know, this has been a really good investment. I wonder how well it's done. And, you know, I have uh, Amanda send me over the spreadsheet. And I think on this particular property in 18 months, we'd cash flowed $400. Well, that's not, you know, I'm not retiring anytime soon <laughs> on the, the $25 a month I'm getting there. Now the property's paying for itself. That includes all maintenance and everything, but that's something you want to be pretty cautious of, of is this actually going to, Bill has the expression of if it can pay for itself and then a dollar, he'll do the deal. 
I think the I would go a little bit more than that personally. <laughs> well, <laughs> my conservative Bill's son. a little bit more of a, a leverage <laughs> man than maybe our average listener, but I think the point there is you've got to make sure it is actually paying for itself. You know, getting a $20,000 cash out profit is great, but if you now bleed $200 a month, well, <laughs> yeah, and there is there is a point really in buy and hold real estate, and this is why I call it survive to you thrive. Because if you're going to scale, you you can do property management yourself up to maybe 20 units, 25, 30 units. I don't know. You can so you're you're kind of running around doing everything, which I did, and most of us did when we started. That's just the way you've got to start. But at some point, you start hiring this out. And that's when your cash flow doesn't usually meet the demands of having a payroll also that you have property management, either you're, you're, you're outsourcing it or you're doing it yourself. And so at that, that's where the real crux of the difficulty comes. And you need to be prepared to, to make that jump. If you're, if you want to scale, you've got to, got to figure out how to, how to keep your cash flow enough, high enough and uh, yet keep keep a port building your portfolio at the same time. Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, the way I've looked at it, and I think I'm actually good with this analogy, I view my buy and hold portfolio like a really, really cool 401k. This is something that's, I'm not, I'm not expecting a dividend this month, right? I'm not expecting a dividend next month. This is something that I'm like my retirement is taken care of at 26 and that's, that's pretty dang cool. And we'll continue to go, um, up even from there. But I look at the transactional piece, the wholesaling and flipping and wholetailing that is kind of the now money, right? So, you know, I know a lot of people that oh, I want to get to 10 units so I can retire and, you know, cool. I'm getting $2,000 a month. First off, that doesn't do much for me in San Diego, (laughs) but it's, you know, really like, what if instead you took that 2000 a month that you're hoping to cash flow, put that back into marketing and then use that to find other deals or find properties to flip in Indianapolis, our average profit on an asset we choose not to keep is right around $17,000, right? So it's not very hard to, um, make a very livable income while building long-term wealth. A friend of mine uh, wanted to become a full-time missionary and was like, I'm trying to just add up how many rental properties I need in order to make this work. And I was like, first off, what's property management going to look like with you in Africa? <laughs> like who's, who's doing that piece? You look at from a cash flow perspective, his goal was to pull in something like 3000 a month. It's like, you only have to do a couple deals a year to have that sort of income. So you know, I would say maybe that's a little bit of a paradigm shift, but I know even just from what I've seen being around a lot of buy and hold investors, you know, really where you make your your good large chunks of money is in the appreciation, in the debt pay down, in the depreciation, the tax benefits, and then occasionally you get a really nice cash out refi check. Um, but I wouldn't expect it to be this like fairy tale, this is going to be passive, I'm going to retire with 20 units Uh, collect my mailbox money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I would look at it a lot more of your building long-term wealth, like five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and then use the skills you've developed there to generate kind of your now income if you don't like your W-2 job. 
Andrew, I, I wonder if you might uh, share just a little bit about nine years being in Kansas City. You guys finally had a refinance that gave you quite a bit of breathing room here recently, which is pretty cool. But it was been tight up till now. Well, I mean, yeah, it, real estate's always generally tight when you're using the burst strategy or when you're trying to trying to cash flow. I, I think people, yeah, people expect a loss of just tons and tons of cash flow when you're having, you know, when you have debt on the property, especially early on, are just kidding themselves. Um, but we finally started to tap into some of the equity we'd built up over the course of of time. Some of our first refinances uh, that went through in 2012, 2013, we decided, you know, there's been a lot of appreciation in the market. There's been some, quite a bit of pr- principal pay down and their interest rates were higher. And even though, they, uh, so it makes sense to, to refinance those. And we finally pulled out a good chunk of change. Now we could have refinanced them earlier if we really wanted to, if we really needed to. Um, uh, but, uh, well, one thing we were, we had more properties to finance newer properties. And so limited number of banks give, willing to give us a limited number, number of loans as we wanted to prioritize those. We've kind of gotten to the point where we don't have as many properties to, to finance on the front end. And so we can use some of that, that potential, those banks to refinance older properties and finally pull out some money and get some breathing room. It's a, it's a very nice feeling to, to pull out a substantial chunk of change uh, from properties that you've owned for a, for a good amount of time, but it takes a while to get there. It is really a slow process. I want to say an arduous process, but a slow process. And it's something that you need patience. It's, it is a get rich slow scheme. It is, um, it is the the uh, uh, you know from the old Stanford marshmallow experiment. The second marshmallow, the uh, the thing that you it's like the fourth marshmallow. Yeah, <laughs> delayed gratification. Delayed gratification, and that is really the name of the game, and why how, why real estate works so well. I would say if you're the kid in that Stanford marshmallow experiment, the five-year-old sitting in front of the marshmallow who said, if you just wait 15 minutes, we're going to give you a second marshmallow, or you can eat it now if you want to. If you're the kid that's going to eat it now and can't wait, probably buy and hold real estate investments, not for you. But if you're the kid who can say, you know, I can hang out here and, uh, you know, fidget around and look at that with, uh, you know, longing eyes. If I can get another one in 15 minutes, that'll be two. If you're that kind of kid, buy and hold real estate investment is probably in your future or could be in your future. And I would significantly uh, encourage you. Real quick before we close, just because I want to highlight something here. Um, Andrew's Kansas City portfolio alone is an Inc. 5000 company. That is a huge accomplishment. But I think the thing to take away from that is that doesn't mean they're drowning in cash flow, right? When you're doing long-term buy and hold, this is a long-term strategy. And I think a lot of people kind of have the misconception there. Inc. 5000 is based on revenue. So you can be bleeding. (laughs) You can just be just hemorrhaging cash. Thankfully, you are not. But (laughs) We're not hemorrhaging, no, but you could be. And... (laughs) Here's the other. We basically just told some people Santa's not real. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> but here's the other advantage: if you can if you can survive to thrive. Here's what thriving looks like: you get to the point where you can refinance properties that have built up equity now, have appreciated some. Uh, you've rehabbed them and added value, so they're worth more now. Uh, and all of a sudden, you get tax-free money. Now you are incurring a debt or you're increasing your debt that you have to now pay more for per month likely, but 
all that money that comes in is, is not taxable because it's a loan. And so it's just another huge advantage to buy and hold. Dave Ramsey would not approve, but <laughs> we, we're, we're fans of Dave Ramsey, except when it comes to real estate debt. And with that, maybe, uh, Dave, if you ever want to come on our podcast, we're, we're open, we're open to, to have you on. <laughs> so if anybody knows Dave, please, please let him, Hey, uh, join the good stewards. One of these times, Dave, we'd love to have you, or maybe send in a question or comment that you would have. <laughs> and, uh, for the rest of you as well, we'd really appreciate those comments. Uh, if you have uh, a topic you'd like us to talk about in the future, please send that in as well. And, uh, yeah, check out thegoodstewards.com. We'd uh, love to have you join our community. Thanks. <laughs>